this is Mina Malapetti with another episode of the Seamless Connection podcast. I am thrilled to have with me today Dr. Tanya Elliott and Robert Sandelius. Uh, some of you might remember Tanya from our previous conversations. Um, and we are here to chat about virtual care and educating physicians to embrace it. There's been a lot of talk, uh, pro and con for it, usually mostly pro, but there is a lot that we need uh, and should be helping our physicians with. Um, to help make it as efficient um, and unburdensome as possible. So we have with us today, Dr. Tanya Elliott, Chief Medical Officer at Nectar Allergy, as well as a clinical instructor at NYU Langone, as well as Robert Sandelius, uh, who's on two global boards and was formerly Chief Operating Officer for Ascension Michigan, their largest ministry. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Um, would like to start off this morning by uh, talking to you about how you got into healthcare. I know everyone has their healthcare story, their healthcare inspiration. Um, obviously, Dr. Elliott's been working on it for a number of years, growing access to healthcare nationwide. Um, and Robert, you've been working on it specifically in Michigan, but also you know throughout the country, working to bring access to care and efficient care to hospitals, health systems, and patients um, around the country as well. So for both of you, what inspired you to take that role um, as opposed to obviously the many different routes you could have taken? Start with you, Robert. You know, I, I, I wish I could tell you that it was purposeful and I was inspired, uh, but not many people know this story. I was originally, my first uh, role was in human resources, organizational development. The company I was with uh, laid me off I went on a process of connecting with executives in my town. I met a gentleman by the name of Jack Harif, who was chief human resource officer of a hospital. Uh, Jack was promoted to a rural health system with two hospitals, and he invited me to join him on the human resources team. And I found myself in that role, uh, and the rest is history. Over the last 20 years, I've been in the C-suite of healthcare entities. Uh, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. I have a passion for individuals, uh, for health and well-being, and flourishing. Um, I had no idea I was going to get into care innovation or healthcare innovation in any way. I um, finished my fellowship in allergy and immunology and then went into private practice on Park Avenue and thought I was just going to do that. And then very quickly, I just saw a whole bunch of things that were broken in our healthcare system. One, is it related to access to care? I thought it was archaic that patients had to pick up the phone to call to get in touch with me. And then there was a call service or answering. And I couldn't even get in touch or communicate with my patients easily and effectively. And then as an allergist, I just it didn't make any sense to me that all I would do is talk to patients about what their environmental triggers were, what their allergic triggers were in their environment, right? And then I would ask them to leave that environment, come to my office, and then describe to me everything that was happening in their home environment. I wish I could just see inside your house because I would be able to identify what exactly it is that's triggering your symptoms. So, so there's got to be a better way to deliver care to patients. And it was that own personal quest on how I can improve both just the communication and accessibility to me, as well as my diagnoses and clinical decision making that put me on this journey to initially find telehealth and then find all other aspects of care delivery and recognize that patients spent 99.9% .9 of their time outside of the doctor's office and very little time inside a doctor's office. So how can I better interact with patients when they're doing their everyday thing so that I could get a better, clearer picture of their overall health? 
No, that makes a lot of sense. And for both of you, having led healthcare institutions, having worked with various hospitals, hospital systems, uh, private companies, all working to deliver care to patients efficiently, how has virtual care um, both opened up opportunities, but also potentially led to new complications we didn't envision before, right? And 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 we'll get into the meat of kind of the conversation today, which is, what are those potential complications on how can we help our physicians and uh, providers of the future address those effectively? Well, I can start with this just because I was chief medical officer of virtual care at Ascension at the national level, level. And then Robert was the COO of Ascension Michigan, which was their largest health ministry. And he was one of the few open-minded um, operators who said, listen, we can't keep doing things the way that we're doing things. It's incredibly inefficient. There is so much opportunity for us to embrace technology to improve care delivery. So that's sort of where we started on our journey. And I would say that probably both of us are virtual care evangelists. Um, but then you quickly realize, you know, in theory, it makes complete sense, right? It makes complete sense for one provider to be licensed in multiple states so that you can mat better match capacity to demand. The problem is that all of our technologies and all of our workflows and all of our infrastructure and all of our reimbursement is tied to brick and mortar care fee-for-service, right? Our EHRs, our real estate contracts, the way in which our ancillary staff services interact, right? The regulatory requirements that say that a doctor has to be physically co-located with a advanced practice provider, for example, they have to physically be in the same place in order for supervision to happen. I mean, all of these things um, go against virtual care. So then the question is, how can you retrofit some of those workflows? What are the workarounds for some of the legal regulatory requirements? So then it's like you start to peel back the onion. It becomes really, really challenging to superimpose virtual care delivery, virtual care workflows, virtual care reimbursement into an existing infrastructure that knows only uh, nothing other than fee-for-service and brick-and-mortar care that happens face-to-face, -face, you know, so that's, those were some of the challenges that we experienced at Ascension, which are not unique to Ascension. We see it across the board, across the country. Robert, I'll turn it over to you in terms of what your point of view is as the operator um, thinking through some of this stuff. Yeah, well, well said. Um, you know, when you've seen one health system, you've seen one health system. They, they are so different in terms of their models, their structures, the way they organize physicians, and my experience, you know, part of my my history is 10 years consulting across the United States and some globally. Um, and we are now entering a chapter of the wild, wild west of telehealth. And, you know, in 2022, there were 1,100 distinctly different telehealth companies in the United States. That was a 32% increase from 2021. And from 2017 to now, that's grown 30% plus year over year. So as an operator, the challenge is, how in the world do I keep track of this? How do I vet what is most appropriate for the clinicians in our physician enterprise? And then how do we educate the physicians in digital innovation upskilling so that they know the application of these methods in their practice, feet on the street, where it impacts the patient? And let's not lose sight of the outcome that we're all seeking. Technology is not a strategy right? It's, it's an enabler to an outcome of keeping people from becoming patients. And when they are a patient, it's getting them back to health and well-being as quickly as possible. 
And I think sometimes we try bolt-on technology just for the fact that everybody else is doing it. And, and we miss the whole point that it has to work at the clinician point of care at scale to make the difference we want it to make. Yeah. And we see this a lot from our perspective and, and, and Tanya, I completely <laughs> feel the pain of what you're talking about because as again, we're a virtual care company working across all 50 States just to get on pair contracts in one state. And you have to have that physical location because they're working with old CMS regulations. Like it just blows the mind, like this many years past COVID and through COVID that um, how long it takes to have it meet reality. And I guess that's, that's Robert, to your point here, there's two points to that solution, right? Which is one, you have to have the right tools in place that are incentivized and focus on getting the right uh, end result. But then two, you have to train your staff, the physicians, the nurses, the uh, other enablers of that to use them properly and in the right situation. I know one of the pushbacks on telehealth has been, there's too many point solutions, it's too much training. It actually increases the burden of, uh, the administrative burden of delivering care, right? Um, What are your thoughts on that? Uh, exactly true. I, my thoughts are there's no easy button. Uh, I, there, there just isn't. It's complex, and and especially in the United States, in the complexity of our health systems, in the disparate models, the disparate physician organization structures. You know, one one of the the boards I'm on is a company called TAMP, uh, theampdoctor.com, and it provides digital innovation upskilling platforms for clinicians across the globe. We have 90,000 clinicians that are active on this platform. Uh, And the thing that we hear time and time and time again is the inability to be vulnerable and authentic with those that are proposing the platforms with which they have to adopt. So how does a physician create a competency level where they feel confident interacting with their patient? If a patient comes in and says, hey, I I heard about this diabetes management platform, should I be using it? Out of the hundred that exist, how does a doctor know to say yes or no? So I I, I really think it takes a long-term vision. It takes patience. It takes dyad relationships and collaboration with clinicians. And it takes a meaningful pathway of creating confidence and a baseline competency among your providers at scale. And I'll just like, I'll add to that, which is like, um, sure, there are a lot of point solutions out there, but I'd like for us to think about this in three buckets. One is clinical services. The second is technology or platform infrastructure, actually the technology. And then the third is workflow. Um, So when we talk about these point solutions, yes, there are things that, and you have to ask yourself the question, both as an individual provider, as well as, you know, um, an administrator or an operator, like, which of these do I want to own? If the answer is I don't want to own anything, then take an off the shelf solution that has the technology, the clinical services and the workflows all built in. And then the thing you have to solve for is the piping of how does the right information kind of flow into the treating provider. If you want to own part of that, which is clinical services, well, then you've got to invest the time in the providers, helping them understand how to operate in this infrastructure, whether it's how to conduct a virtual physical examination, how and when to act on remote patient monitoring data, how to do provider second opinions, what have you. Um, And then also figure out how to adapt your existing technology to support that. But it's got to be embedded within an existing technology if you want to kind of own that service. And then on the workflow side, you just have to acknowledge and recognize that the current 
infrastructure, as I said before, the current infrastructure is not set up for virtual care. So you're going to have to spend a lot of time thinking about how you are going to best embed a workflow within an existing workflow as much as possible, right? So that doctors don't feel like they're learning a whole new thing. So question, so first separate those things into buckets. Second is figure out what it is that you wanna own. And then from there, go for it. But I will tell you what we've historically done in medicine has said, like take the primary care provider, right? The primary care provider used to see patients in the hospital and then used to see patients in their office. And then they said, no, 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 we want to stick to one or the other, right? So then we've created a subspecialist of hospitalists that just do hospitalist medicine and then outpatient providers just doing outpatient providers. And we see this across specialties like cardiology, for example. Oh, do you want to do EP? Do you want to do interventional? Do you want to do um, whatever, you know, five or six different subspecialties? I don't think virtual care is going to be any different. So the question I ask for providers and health systems is like, do you want to do hybrid care? Do you want to do both? Do you like to just do the ambulatory? Um, in person, do you like to do just the asynchronous telehealth? Do you like to do synchronous telehealth? Do you like to do that in, in, in an inpatient setting, right? I think what we're going to end up seeing are subspecialists that pick and choose what they want to do. And then again, it's going to just be, how do we figure out the, that integration piece? But I, I, I don't really see any other way. I don't know that we're going to have a provider that's going to be able to cut across all of those things and see patients in person in the hospital and then flip to telehealth and then flip to a, a hub centralized command center to do remote monitoring. I don't think it's gonna be one person. I think it's gonna be subspecialties within virtual care. And then we're gonna just have to figure out how to transfer that information. And hopefully it's not just in the form of a fax or a PDF. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not a fax. We, I'm still shocked that that is, that is a requirement for practicing medicine. So, I want to take us back to, to something you just said, Robert, which is, uh, you know, to Tanya's point of, of figuring out which doctors, you know, what are the doctors going to do? What are they going to use? What part of that are they implementing? But to your point, if a patient comes to them or the, looks to them as an expert for all of the different myriad of options out there right now for telehealth, that's really hard. So one of my questions to you, and this is just an opinion, having you prognosticate, but um, do you think there's going to be um, a, a clear kind of conceptual leader in each field or each subspecialty or each use case, i.e. such that we know, for example, all, you know, most hospitals today for the EMRs, let's take them, right? Most hospitalists or most doctors will know Epic and Cerner, right? They might know Meditech, they might know CPSI, and then you have a long tail of like 70, 100 plus, what have you, other EMRs, depending on where they are, where they practice. Do you feel like uh, you mentioned, Robert, there's like 1,100 telehealth companies now, as opposed to what it was before, at what point do we see that getting rationalized down to where there's a few key winners and losers so that we can start educating our physicians and they can start knowing, hey, these are the top ones for this kind of indication. Because if you're, you're not going to educate someone across 1100, but maybe 10, right? Maybe five. Yeah, I think we'll start seeing that in the next three to five years, actually. You know, the old adage, it takes about 10 years to become an overnight success. There, there's, there's been these companies that have received a lot of money from venture capital, from private equity uh, via COVID that has dried up. Uh, we, we know that the access to that well of fuel to keep them going is diminishing. And I believe we're already starting to see consolidation in the industry. And, and a lot of these companies are going to fall off the map. Having said that, 
I believe it takes a purposeful, purposeful process that's done in collaboration with clinicians in allowing them to lead in the clinical decision-making of what method and what platform allows them to uh, do their craft in a way that deepens relationship with the patient, creates efficiency uh, in clinical care. And, and I think what is just a travesty is when you have a group of administrators with suits and ties and they decide to choose X and they then go to the doctor's offices and say, hey, plug this in. And all these clinicians are going, no, you know, it's, I'm not going to interrupt my workflow. Um, so clinicians are really, really smart. And they have a, a radar that's focused on patient care and doing what's best for the people that they serve. And they have an ability to sift through all of the bright, shiny things that don't bring about what's absolutely necessary in creating health and well-being in populations. So if, if I could leave one nugget with your audience, and I don't care what kind of company you are, if you're early stage, founder-led, startup, middle market, you have to have clinicians in the formative, iterative stages that have influence in helping you shape and helping you evolve product market fit and usability. And if you wait or you don't, failure in my opinion, you're not gonna create scale and you're not gonna go anywhere. And I'll just say that said, clinicians out there, stop thinking within the existing constructs of brick and mortar care delivery, right? And we're going to do this because we've historically done this before, or that's just the way things are. Technology is moving at a rapid speed. It is exponential in terms of generative AI and, and, and just the ways in which one individual provider can interact with thousands of patients at a time, right? When you think about like remote monitoring and intervening during moments that matter. And so like everything that you were taught before, throw it out the window and be open-minded to some of these new technologies that are out there Put the patient first and then say, okay, what is the job to be done here? If I need to make a clinical intervention on this patient, I want to have the most accurate, objective information on that patient over a period of time. So I'm not just jumping to conclusions based on one biomarker or one value. And then I have to be able to deliver that to a patient at the right moment in time, wherever they are, right? That's what we need to do. We need to deliver the best possible care to patients. I don't care how we've historically done it. What I care about is an open-mindedness to saying, hey, you know what? I do think if I had a blank slate, this is what I would do. So I challenge doctors to think that way. I challenge educational systems and medical schools to start teaching your medical students to think that way, because that can be a whole other podcast about how we are training providers who in 10 years will be obsolete compared to the way in which technology is developing, yet it does not exist in medical school curriculum. But just be open-minded and for these technology companies absolutely get providers involved early on but i would do a some sort of very robust interview process to make sure that these providers are open-minded enough to think about the job to be done otherwise what you're going to solve for is an old system we're going to solve for is how to make their jobs easier today given their existing constraints, their hatred for the EHR, their hatred for meaningful use, the transition from fee-for-service to value-based care and how frustrating that is, right? So you wanna make sure all the startups are getting the right inputs 
from these providers. So screen them first. Otherwise, you're going to be creating solutions that aren't going to solve today's healthcare problems. And that brings me to my kind of key question here for both of you, which is um, we've all seen doctors that do it really well. We've also seen doctors that don't, right? And it is a skill and people forget that. Building rapport over virtual is a skill. Getting, being able to handle a patient over virtual care methodologies is a skill. And it's a skill that you need to be trained in. We don't have, like you just pointed out, Tanya, it's not in medical schools today. Obviously, there's a lot of young people that are very savvy with tech, but it's still different texting on your phone and watching TikTok than it is treating a patient, being able to go through their EMR completely virtually, being able to handle a virtual exam and figuring out what you can and can't do and accommodate for that in other methodologies. So what do you, th and, and for the physicians and for the, for the systems, quite frankly, that you've seen do it successfully, Right. What are the keys that you have seen that maybe we can pull out as best practices and dive into of, you know, when they made it work really well, what did they do? What were the doctors trained in or what experiences and skills that they have or that they were told to develop or help develop? And what were the resources put in place to help support that virtual care delivery? I, I'm, Tanya can run circles around me on this one, but I, I just want to plant a couple seeds. What I've seen as most effective is you have clinicians teaching clinicians. You, you have individuals who are very skilled in their craft. They've done it. They've proven it. They've shown that it works. And they're able to give uh, a methodology, a communication, a role model that any administrator, educator could never give. So I've seen that be the most effective. The other piece is um, feedback loops. So you, you let somebody try it in increments. You get the feedback loops. You continue to improve. And the third is how you frame this is going to be critically important because you're not going to gain a competency if you think you're going to go through a two-hour CME and jump out and you're done. It's, it's a journey that is long-term and never-ending, and you're continuously improving, at least from an operator. Those are the three legs of the stool that I would emphasize. Yep. Um, so Ed, I'll start with, you know, 11 years ago when uh, telehealth wasn't even cool and I was a doctor on demand. And so we actually created the first virtual workforce. We W2'd all of the providers and we said, hey, this is this is all you're doing is this role. Right. And we created a robust training program, how to conduct virtual physical examination. Um, we put together physician dashboards. So we showed the amount of time by diagnosis that a provider was spending with a patient and had a comparison to their peers so that they can understand because there's no um, you know, framework for this, right? It's, it's a, what Robert said before, to some extent a wild west. So to say, okay, well, here's how you're doing compared to your peers. And we've done millions of visits per year. So we could at least do that comparison. How much time is the right amount of time to spend with a patient who has a UTI? Um, what aspects of a physical exam can and should you do, right? So then we had all this data compared to the, you know, the provider peers, which was, we found to be incredibly helpful. And then the other thing to your point, Robert, about feedback was we had, a, we, Dr. Unamand was a virtual urgent care, right? Initially, now they do virtual primary care and they're called included health. Um, but when I was a, pay, a provider on the platform, I probably saw seven or 8,000 patients on the platform. I loved that at the end of every visit, the patients got to rank me like an Uber star, you know, rating. So anywhere from one star to five stars. And at the end of my shift, I would get all the feedback in real time from the patients. So I would say like, oh, here's a theme. The doctor made eye contact with me. The doctor spent a lot of time with me. The doctor really listened to me. The doctor was thorough. 
Um, you know, I wanted antibiotics, but the doctor didn't give it to me. And so sometimes I would try to explain it. Other times I would just say, hey, these are the guidelines, right? And so that I was actually able to understand and learn in real time at the end of every shift, what was resonating with patients and what wasn't. And then what we actually did was we looked at all of the patient reviews across a provider practice over a 12 month period. And we looked at all of the five-star reviews and all of the one-star reviews, and we were able to rank them. This is a published paper um, based off of the core competencies that you're trained on in medical school. So building rapport, shared decision-making, providing guidance. And our initial assumption was that people were going to rate something as a five-star because of convenience or costs, right? Because it was low cost and it was super easy. It wasn't. It was the amount of time spent, which the average amount of time spent for an urgent care visit was nine minutes. Although the patient said the doctor was so thorough, the doctor listened to me, um, you know, this was for nine minutes of time. Um, And that the patient, the doctor was kind, the doctor heard me. And so all those aspects of building rapport. Um, So we found that to be incredibly impactful. One, two, have providers be sort of evaluated based off of how their peers were performing. Um, And then also getting that real-time feedback from patients, which I don't know how we would possibly be able to do that without a telehealth platform. Um, For, sorry, and I was just checking one of the the questions that just came to mind as you were saying that in terms of the last area that I want to have you guys dive into, which is exactly that, is um, as we kind of, I know we're coming up on the end of time for the podcast, but as we think about the audience and, and who's listening for whether it's the providers, whether it's the health systems, you guys brought up a lot of really key points, which is, you know, from the beginning of the process of selecting a, a, the right tool and the right technology and the right um, platform, um, and including the clinicians early and the providers early in that conversation, all the way through to how do you train? How do you teach? How do you get them comfortable with it? Um, but I think at the end of the day, what you just said right here, Tanya, was, is, at the, is, is humanizing it, right? Making it, making it, the tool for what it is meant to be, which is that human connection between the provider and the patient. And at the end of the day, that's what virtual care is supposed to do, right? It's supposed to enable that in a more scalable fashion. Um, What are the final words you'd leave either Robert from your perspective, if it's the health system or Tanya from your perspective, if it's the providers and clinicians out there, what are the final words you'd leave to them as they kind of look to practice in, you know, this brave new world of, of telehealth where it will integrate with kind of standard traditional healthcare of brick and mortar, but it's going to be a bigger and bigger portion because as we all know, there aren't enough providers, there aren't enough resources. And the only way to make that scale appropriately is by including virtual care as a significant, not just, you know, here on the side, here and there when people are sick, but as a significant intentional portion of your practice or your healthcare delivery mechanism. For me, uh, you mentioned being human uh, and a human-centered approach, uh, and I'll answer from a human-centered approach. Whether you're a clinician, administrator, CEO, whatever, uh, a couple things. One, remain passionately curious. Uh, know that what you know this week will be different next Tuesday, will be different a year from now. So be passionately curious. Commit to a purposeful journey of learning. Uh, it changes so frequently and so often. You have to be proactive in scanning your environment, opening up yourself to experts and and consistently learning. And the third, actually, I think is the most difficult. Uh, And I believe it's a superpower in leadership, but you don't hear it much in business. Be vulnerable. Be willing to say, I don't know. I don't have that figured out. Who can help us wrestle with these questions and help us answer these questions? 
I think if you start with that foundation and you're committed to that foundation, you'll be able to be ahead of most of the organizations. I love that. I love what you said, Robert. And um, just kind of piggybacking off of that in terms of the clinicians who may be listening or even the, the people in the startup environment that are looking to recruit doctors, just be open-minded and don't think that healthcare needs to be delivered the way in which it has historically been delivered. Don't think that the only career paths that you can go into are academic, translational, clinical research, private practice, hospitalists, what have you. Like There are so many ways in which you can impact patients in healthcare. And so many times, I think a lot of physicians are jaded and they will tell young people that are in college, oh, don't go, don't become a doctor, right? Because reimbursement stinks and all you do is fight with insurance companies and you've got a document in this EHR and we spent, and then all these papers come out. Doctors spend 33% of their time or 50% of their time documenting in an EHR and they can't even communicate with patients. The number of portal messages has increased to 40%, right? So everyone just continues to jump on this negative bandwagon and also the tech, you know, to some extent, technology is the bad guy in all of this. And I will say that I am so glad that I decided to become a physician and that I ended up on this serendipitous non-traditional path. But right now is the time, like the world is our oyster. We are on a precipice for a completely new way in which care is delivered. So try, try GPT, search on LinkedIn and see whether or not there might be um, a job that's a, you know, someone that's looking for a medical director to help inform a new a new uh, healthcare startup, right? Dabble in this space, go to join the Digital Medicine Society, go to some of these networking happy hours, go to some of these conferences, just see what's out there. I think you'll be amazed. So for anybody that sort of feels like they're stagnant, probably if you're watching this podcast, you're probably not, right? You're already sort of opening the door, but embrace it, right? And go for it. And then think about ways in which you can deliver value because the truth is you can make a huge impact in healthcare today. It's a very, very exciting time. Yeah, no, and that's that's amazing, and it's it's funny. It brings to mind. I don't know if you guys remember back in the day, those shirts and those that whole slogan, "No fear," right? It's it's oh yeah, it's, it's the no fear model, right? It's a no fear model of going forth into this brave new world. Um, both of you, thank you so much for sharing your time. I know this could be a podcast for like three hours. We still would run out of things to say, but um, I do want to be sensitive to your commitments. And thank you so much for taking the time today to chat. Um, I'm looking forward to hopefully revisiting this in a few months and, or maybe even a year and seeing where we are, because I do think I agree with both of you. There's big changes coming, uh, whether or not people want them to, <laughs> and all the tips you guys have shared in terms of how you can best prepare for that whether it's as a health system, as a provider, really key. And if you don't, you're going to get left behind. I think this is what we will see. 